Great to be with you today, and a little word of encouragement before I get into our, uh, our text today. Uh, got a note from Pastor Dexter. Friday night, downtown Gary, our Gary campus, we, we run on Friday nights our epic youth ministry, and uh, wonderful outreach and, and ministry there, downtown Gary's. Friday night, four young men received Christ as their savior at the epic, so it's really fantastic. Praise God for that. And... Uh, so we hope for much more, maybe even here this morning, because indeed we are talking about the gospel that saves and the God who saves. And uh, as we get into Romans 5 today, I want to uh, begin by, by talking a little bit of math with you, because we're talking about the math of the gospel today. And uh, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use some mathematical symbols I'm guessing that you haven't seen in quite some time. So uh, let's just talk a little bit of math. So let's begin, with, let's begin with this symbol right here, if you would. Do we have the symbol? Perhaps we do not have the symbol. We do not have the symbol. Okay, here's the symbol. Say it with me. Plus, okay. All right, I just thought I would get momentum going here. Uh, and so those are the easy ones. Today I want to talk with you about the greater than and the less than. The greater than sign, which I'm going to have to do myself here, is like this. Okay, less than would be this. And so if it has a line under it and the greater than, it means greater or equal to. Do I have any math teachers here? Am I getting this right? Okay. Oh, hey, look at that. It suddenly appeared. So there's the symbol for greater uh, or equal to. And then you have, I'm not sure if we'll get this. Okay, let's do the next one. Okay, and this is the key one today, okay? Greater than is that. You put two of them up and it means much greater than, okay? Much greater than. And that symbol is what we're talking about today as it relates to God's grace and our sin. God's grace and our sin. Okay? Not an equal, not simply a greater than, but a greater, greater than, a much greater than. And our text today is uh, Romans chapter 5, and uh, we're going to begin in verse 19, which, uh, verse 18, which is a repeat of some of the things that we saw last week. You'll notice this sounds very similar. Paul, like a good teacher, repeating the things he said to kind of drive the point home. So let me read this now. Here is, here is what God's word says. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now, those two verses summarizing really what we looked at last week, I'm not going to spend a ton more time on it, but remember, we talked about how when Adam sinned, we all sinned with him. That federal headship, that one for all, all for one, where Adam's sin placed all of us into a condition of inherited guilt. We are born in sin, we are born guilty, we sin by nature, and we sin by choice. 
We are sinners through and through. Now, before you say, that doesn't seem fair to me, why, could, why should one person represent everybody else? Realize God uses that same principle in having Jesus die for us. So while we may not like it with Adam, we love it with Jesus, amen? We love the fact that one man could represent all of us and die in all of our place. Indeed, that's what Jesus has done. Now, in this little text, there's actually two lurking heresies. One of my roles as a pastor is to tell you what the truth is, but also sometimes to point out falsehoods and to warn you about going down a path. And these two verses have two contemporary lurking heresies in them. I want to point out to you, try to be a good pastor here today. The first of them is... A, a common teaching today that says that Adam was actually not a historical figure. The historicity of Adam is a debate somewhat more in the uh, kind of, you know, academic world, but it certainly has an impact in sort of the, the laity in, in the church. But the historicity of Adam is, is basically people who lean on scientific invest, investigation and they say... The origins, studies in the origins of man are, are not suggesting that we all came from one person. And so therefore, Adam could not be an actual historical figure. And they say that he, he actually was a, he, rep, he was one, a term that represented everybody. Or he was a mythical figure that Adam, or that Paul is using here. Well, to say this, we have to say that Paul was wrong. Because clearly, Paul believed Adam to be an actual, real human being that lived. And if Paul was wrong, uh, then the whole thing collapses, okay? And so we, of course, stand against that teaching. We believe that not only was Adam an actual human being, but also, therefore, Christ was an actual human being. Because if you say that Adam, or Adam was a myth, then maybe you're saying that Christ was also a myth, so we deny the uh, challenges to the historicity of Adam. We believe that Adam was an actual human being. The second heresy that we see here, a potential one, is in verse 18, which if you took in isolation, you could come to a very wrong conclusion. Look at verse 18. So one act of righteousness leads to justification, and notice, and life for all men. If you just took that out and said, this is now my verse, you would come to the conclusion, what? That since Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and it's life for all men, that in the end, what? Everybody's saved. Now, who doesn't love that thought? I mean, in a sense, I would love that thought, <laughs> that it'd be great if somehow in God's plan, in the end, doesn't matter who you are, whether you believe in Jesus or not, what part of the world you grew up in, what era, epic you grew up in, it doesn't matter, in the end, everybody's saved. There's an appeal to that. I would love it as a dad right now to think about my two daughters and to say, hey, you know, do my best, you know, take them to Awana to, to teach them the Bible, uh, you know, try to live a Christian life before them, but it doesn't really matter in the end because they're going to heaven anyway. And my neighbor, my family member that I love, all that, doesn't matter. And there is this teaching out there, it is known as universalism. Say that word with me, universalism. Now hate it, okay, just hate it because it is, it is, indeed, a, it is indeed an ancient, old heresy 
that teaches, and there's a few ways that you get to universalism. One is to say that all roads lead to God, so therefore it doesn't matter if you believe in you know, Jesus, Allah, you know, uh, the tooth fairy, all of it gets you to God. And another way that universalism, um, you get to universalism is if you take a position that says that there is even someday, even in hell, the opportunity for sinners to repent. And that somehow in the virtue of God, his plan in the end is to save everybody. And so a true universalist would even hold out the possibility that Satan himself could repent. And everybody is restored. The demon, Satan, every sinner restored to God. And in the end, everybody's with God and there is no hell. Well, if you drive by, for example, a Unitarian church and you look at that and you say, I wonder what those people believe. Well, this is what they believe. This would be a core truth for them. But it's not simply the Unitarians. There actually are many Universalists quietly in uh, various places in Christendom. And this is a very dangerous uh, theology. It, it, It shows itself at moments. So, for example, most recently, the very popular book, The Shack, heads this direction. Well-known media personality and preacher uh, Rob Bell recently put forth a universalism in a book entitled Love Wins, which in the end, the love of God wins over everything and everybody goes to heaven. And so now he tours with Oprah uh, and has left his Orthodox Christian roots. So don't think that this isn't out there somehow or somewhere. Uh, I think the shack being one example of how we have to be discerning with what we are reading and to realize what it's actually teaching. So I want to warn you about uh, an errant theology like this, and how you get there is if you just take it out of context. Like if you just pull that verse and say, hey, and then all men are, all men are saved, okay, but have you read the rest of Romans? Paul doesn't begin with Romans 1 with everyone's saved in the end. What does he begin with? The wrath of God. And it's, it's wrath and judgment and sin and condemnation. And then you get later in the book and it says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Because how can anybody be saved if they don't hear the gospel of Jesus Christ? So Romans is one massive evangelistic plea to put your faith and trust in Jesus It is not, the point of the book is not, it doesn't matter in the end because everybody's saved. I heard a cry on that point, amen. (laughs) We should all be crying on that point. So be discerning, hold to a historical Adam and a gospel of salvation by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. The focus of our message today is in verses 20 and 21. I'm going to read that now. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. How about I read that again, okay? Let me read it again. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And all God's people said, amen Amen to this, okay? Amen to this. Now you might say, why all this talk about the law, the Old Testament 
law of God. If you're just off the streets here today, you might be like actually people that were part of the church at Rome. Paul is writing this letter to the, to the church at Rome, a, a church that had Jews, people who had been historically practicing the Jewish faith. It had Gentiles, people who had been historically practicing pagan religions and all of its immorality. And these people all come together in the church. Sounds fun, doesn't it? So there's very different backgrounds re- uh, represented in the church at Rome. And so for the Jews, those who came into the church from the Jewish faith, the law had really been the basis of their entire relationship with God. And to them, Paul says, now the law to you, it's, it's too important. It's not the basis of your relationship with God. Jesus Christ's work on the cross is the basis of your relationship with God. But to the Gentiles, he's now saying it's not important enough. The law of God has something very important to do, a role to play in God's plan, even in the New Testament, even in the New Covenant. The law of God, critically important. So beginning in verse 20, the law came in to increase the trespass. Okay? To increase the trespass. What? How can a law somehow make something more sinful? How can it increase the wrongness of a moral action? Okay, now, to help with this, I wanna show you a little chart here that explains when the law came. So, Paul's building his argument here on what happened prior to the law and when the law came. So if we go back in time, we have creation, we have Adam, Genesis three, the fall, Some time passes, you have Abraham. God establishes a relationship with Abraham and all of his descendants. And it isn't until Moses comes there at Mount Sinai that God gives the Old Testament law. Now what Paul is saying, has been saying in chapter five is, yes, the law didn't come until Moses, but what happened to everybody prior to the law coming? They all died. They all died. So don't say that you have to have the Old Testament law in order to be a sinner. No, we all have been sinners ever since the fall, and death proves our guilt before God. We all all die. But the law comes at uh, the time of Moses, and this now is God communicating to mankind in detail what his character is like and what his expectations are for mankind. So if everyone was already dying, everybody was already sinners, why did God have to give the law? I mean, isn't this kind of like God piling on? You know what piling on is, right? You got somebody that you know, is tackled, playing some game on the, on the playground, and then like 15 other people all jump on top of him, right? He's, he's down, he's already down, but let's make sure he's down. Doesn't it feel like, you know, the 10 commandments is God going wham, 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 piling on. All right, we're sinners, we get it. But why do you keep smashing us? Well, what the law does, listen everybody, what the law does is the law shows us just how sinful we are. It is a mirror. It is a mirror. Now, as many of you know, um, I got married just a couple years ago. And lots of things happen when you get married, okay? Lots of changes happen when you get married. And I had two sisters growing up, but I was still unprepared for 
many of the female tools that are used for beautification in the morning, especially early on, I was like, what is that for? What does that do? What is that device for? Did you know, for example, that there are female mirrors that make things smaller and female mirrors that make things bigger? Who knew such mirrors existed? I'm not venturing very far into this. I'm walking on thin ice with at least half of the crowd. (laughs) But they have all kinds of little tricks and things that they incorporate as they get ready in the morning. And one of the things that they use is they use a particular kind of mirror. Okay, this is a mirror. It's concave in shape. Oftentimes it has lights around it. And it is a, what ladies? A magnifying mirror. It's a magnifying mirror. What is the purpose of this magnifying mirror? It is used by women to see their face up close. It magnifies their face, but that is not actually the point, okay? The point is not to magnify the face. The point is to magnify the blemishes. This mirror, you look in this mirror, everybody is ugly in this mirror, (laughs) right? Because you look into that mirror, and all of a sudden, what do you see? You see every single little blemish on your face. You see every little zit, every little pore, every little sunspot, every little blemish of any kind. Suddenly now, there it is in all of its glory. Things that were always there, you just didn't know it. Are you with me? See, you all figured out where I'm going with this, but just hang on, I'm not there yet, okay? How could this be helpful? Like, why would you submit yourself to such morning torture as to look at your face in all of its gory detail? Men do not use magnifying mirrors. We know we look good without looking in a mirror, (laughs) right? So why are there millions of These mirrors in hotel rooms, in personal residences, all across the world, why, why, why? Well, question. Do magnifying mirrors change the way that you actually look? No. All they do is allow you to see clearly who you really are. To see yourself, your face, in all of its blemishes. They place light on the imperfections, and they bring into focus deficiencies. The law came in to increase the trespass. How did God giving us the law do this? The moral commands of God only show more clearly all of our transgressions. We are are more sinful than we realize, but how do we come to realize how sinful we are? In the grace of God, in the kindness of God, he gave the law. And by giving us that law, we see ourselves how God sees us. 
And without that, we would, not, we would not realize how sinful we are. Yes, creation's beautiful and God gave us a conscience and we can kind of discern that, hey, we're not who we're supposed to be from these things. But when you peer into the revealed law of God, all of a sudden, all of our imperfections are seen with clarity. So for example, just consider the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make an image of God. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You are to keep the Sabbath holy. You are to honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not lie. You shall not selfishly desire anything somebody else has. You just read those ten. And how do we feel right now? We feel squirmy, don't we? Because just reading those 10, I begin to think about Wednesday this week and that episode I had with my coworker. I didn't murder him, but man, I was mad. And the interaction I had with my parents on the phone, which didn't feel like honoring them. And oh, by the way, I saw the new car that my friend has, and I thought to myself, Who is he to have that car? And a thousand other things that the Ten Commandments clarify and help us see we're more sinful than we realize. Friends, the law doesn't make sin sin. God makes sin sin. The law reveals in clarity the depth and the breadth of our sinfulness, okay? It shows us every pore of idolatry. It, it shows us every sunspot, sunspot of pride. It, it shows all of in the nastiness of who we really are. And if you're sitting here today and you're like, I don't know what you're talking about, you are more sinful, friend. I say this wanting the best, God's best in your life. You and we are more sinful than we begin to realize. And the law is a little like it's a, it's a little talisman in this world of the holiness of God and shows just how far we fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. The law came in to increase the trespass. But notice the rest of the verse. But where sin increased... Grace abounded all the more. Ah. Is that a fresh breeze that just blew into the room right now? Let me read that again. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. What this text is saying is that while we may be more sinful than we realize, we are not more sinful than God realizes. He sees us in high def clarity, exactly who we are morally and spiritually before him. He sees us in all of our imperfections. He sees us all of our deficiencies. And even when the law condemns, God's grace abounds, it says, all the more. Now let's talk about grace, and we're going to talk about grace the rest of Romans. Amen. Once you get past chapter 3, you're like, I could use a little grace because you get to, you know, 320 and we're just all going to hell. Uh, And then you're like, where's the good news in this? Well, the good news is the grace of God. 
So what is grace? Let's talk about grace a moment, make sure we know what we, what we mean by this word. Grace is kindness that is unmerited. It is giving to somebody good who deserves bad. It is not giving them what they, that's actually mercy is not giving them what they deserve. Grace is giving them what they don't deserve. God's goodness on display. In fact, Peter says he is the God of all grace. Grace. Grace is so important in the New Testament that it kind of becomes a shorthand for the gospel itself. Because what is the gospel if not God giving to us what we don't deserve? God giving to us something that is good. God giving to us himself and his love. So that is grace. But we could ask this question, is God's grace without limitation? Can God's grace handle sin, all sin, even sin that is highlighted in the magnifying mirror of the law of God? Can it handle sin in all of its ugliness? And here is now a precious truth. And it's another one of these that's somewhat hidden in the Greek. I'm gonna, I occasionally will do this. The New Testament was written originally in Greek, first century Greek, and the words are translated into the English translation that we have, and they do the very best that they can. But there's a wonderful truth that is, that is hidden in the Greek language here, and it's in that little word, abounded all the more. Do you see it? Abounded all the more. It's actually translating one word, one word in the Greek, and it is a word, it's the word that means abounded, but it has a prefix to it. And the prefix is the word hyper, okay, hyper. So we, we might say hyperlink or hypersonic or we'll say about my daughters if they're like bouncing off the walls, we'll say you are so hyper what, right now. What do we mean by that? You have overflowing energy right now. And that's what hyper means. It means abounding. Uh, uh, it's translated actually super. Okay, so where sin abounded, grace superabounded. You with me? So where the law says this is where you are sinfully, God's grace now abounds all the more. It's hyper. It's super. Now here's the math, okay? Here's the math. You might say, okay, Pastor Steve, I get where you're going. God's grace is greater than our sin. Yes, indeed, that is true. But it actually is this. It is God's grace is not just greater than our sin, it's that God's grace is greater, greater than our sin. It is much greater than our sin. It far exceeds our guilt. And we find in this, dear friends, that God's ability to save us is far greater than our ability to sin. And I know Myself, I, we're good sinners here, are we not? I mean, we are, if there's anything that we are good at as a church, we are good at sinning. And yet God is better at saving than we are at sinning. Which is saying something. Because we're really good at it. When the law heightens our guilt, how does this work? When the law heightens our guilt before God, God's grace stretches beyond the guilt level that even the law says that we are before God. It super abounds over all of our sin. And that's, this is true, by the way, even of our worst sins, it stretches to meet them. 
Now think about how important this is with me a moment. Let's just go through some of the mathematical equations that we could be dealing with when it comes to this in God. We could be dealing with this. I mean, God could have, God could be a gracious God. He could have grace. His grace could be amazing, as the hymn says. But if our sin is greater than God's grace, what happens? We all go to hell. We all go to hell. He could have grace, but if it's not enough grace to save us, then we're all in big trouble. So it could be this. It could be this next one. It it could be this, that God's grace is equal to our sin. And maybe we would take small comfort in that. We would say, well, actually, it's it's a wonderful thing that God's grace is, is equal to our sin because our sin is huge. That means God's grace is huge. But what's the problem with this? Well, this would mean that God's grace is finite, it could equal our sin, but it could never overwhelm our sin. He'd be like a benevolent father whose son just keeps getting into trouble, keeps, you know, keeps getting uh, debts and things, and he just keeps paying whatever that debt is, only paying what he had to pay, a begrudging payment. We could say it this way, that God's grace is greater than our sin. And, that, and Paul would have written this, where sin increased, God's grace increased. And you know what, we preach that, we'd be happy about it. We say, isn't it great that God's grace increases when our sin increases and the law increases our guilt, so God's grace increases to meet that? But again, in this case, God's grace only goes as high as it has to go to be greater than our sin. Like .00001% more than our sin. That's God's grace. And we get, okay, great, well, at least we're saved and at least we're going to heaven and at least God's grace covers it. Just enough, barely enough to be greater than our sin. But that is not what Paul says here. What Paul writes is this, where sin increased, God's grace super increased. God's grace super abounded. So here it is, right here, this is the equation, and this is what I want you to get today. God's grace, greater, greater than our sin. Because yes, the law heightens our guilt, and the more we study the law, the more we realize we are way more sinful than we begin to realize. But no matter how sinful we are, God's grace is a character and a quality that it always rises far beyond the guilt of our sin, far beyond the worst that we have done. There his grace is there. And notice by this, he is not frugal with his grace. He is not begrudging with his grace. He doesn't forgive like, okay, like the spouse who just sort of, oh, just to make peace, I'll forgive you. No, he is none of these things. He is lavish with his grace. He is generous with his grace. He is overflowing with his grace. He is superabounding with his grace. Every sin that we have, God's grace floods over top of it. Struggle to find a word for it. And we should ask the question, why? There is no doubt a massive presumption in all of our hearts when it comes to the grace of God. It's like expecting your parents to, you know, buy your school lunch. Well, that's what they do. They buy my school lunch. Am I thankful for it? That's what they do. God is forgiving towards my sin, and his grace comes to me. That's what he does. That's his job. God doesn't have to do any of this. He would be entirely just and right to simply sentence all of us to hell. And nobody would be in hell going, I got the short end of the stick. 
I didn't get what I deserved. Everybody in hell's going, I got exactly what I deserved. It's only the people in heaven that don't get what they deserve. So why would God greater, greater our sin? And Paul answers that in verse 21. Notice, so that, purpose statement, so that, as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Notice the repeated word, reign and reign. Sin reigned in death. But now grace might reign through righteousness. What does the word reign mean? Reign means domination. Reign means complete victory. How complete does sin's reign, or how complete has sin's reign been since Adam? What do you say? I say pretty complete. Pretty much everybody has what? Died. We call that a dynasty. To be a dynasty, you have to win over and over and over again for a very long time by a whole lot of points. That's a dynasty. And every single human being has lived under the dynasty of sin and death, the reign of sin and death. To put this in perspective, people talk about you know, the greatest, arguably at this point, the greatest human kingdom of all time would be Rome. Rome ruled the known world for 500 years. They dominated the world for 500 years. We could call it the reign of Rome. We use this terminology in sports. There are sometimes teams that are so dominant that we call them a dynasty. So, for, for example, uh, UCLA under John Wooden was a dynasty. They won every year. They never, hardly ever lost a single game. They, they just dominated under John Wooden. I heard about one uh, locally here, and this maybe is a dangerous thing to mention in Crown Point. The Munster High School swim team has won the district championship for over 30 years straight. Now, I pause to say this because we actually have a former captain of the Crown Point swim team right here in the room with us who is no doubt squirming in his chair right now at the thought of this. But we got to give credit where credit is due. You win the district championship for 30 years straight? We'll call you a dynasty. Uh, that, that counts as a dynasty. So to be a dynasty, you win by a lot, all the time, for a long, long time. And what we see in the plan of God is this, my dear friends. Listen, I got good news today. In the plan of God, this reign of sin and death, God is not content to barely beat it, to win by one point, to win like one time, to just barely win over Satan. He's not looking for that, well, at least I won kind of victory. He is not glorified by simply barely defeating sin and death, barely getting you to heaven, barely having enough grace in order to save some of humanity. God is not glorified by a barely win. 
Rather, he is glorified and praised for the dynasty of his grace because he dominates sin. He dominates guilt. He dominates the worst of sin that any human being can do. Here comes the grace of God abounding, abounding, like greater than, greater than, complete dynasty over sin and death. He destroys sin in the death of Jesus and displays his grace with overflowing praise for himself. Or as verse 21 says, the reign of grace through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that ought to give every sinner here tremendous encouragement that you are a part of a dynasty of grace, the reign of grace to the glory of God forever. Now here's what this means personally for us is this, is that as the law comes in and increases our guilt, increases our trespass, as we look in that mirror and we see with greater clarity all the time how morally and spiritually deficient we are as we struggle in our life with the power and the presence of sin. And you could pick your sin, whatever that is, and we got all kinds of them represented here in this room. Even as Christians, we have struggles. We go ongoingly struggle against sin. That in spite of all of this, we should never wonder whether God's grace can or will cover our sin. Now, Pastor Steve, you mean by this are like, are sort of ordinary sins, right? You know, the unkind word I said in a moment of frustration to the checkout lady at Walmart, that moment, like, he'll cover that, right? Or the uh, selfish kind of action that I had with my family members when they were being too slow to get dinner going, failing to walk the old lady across the street that one time in my life, God's grace is enough to exceed the ordinary kind of sins, is what you're saying, right? That is true. But Paul could have said it, where sin abounds, God, God's grace abounds. He could have said that. And we would have preached it and been glad for it. But that's not what he said. What did he say? He said where sin increases, God's grace super increases. God's grace rises above even the worst of our sins. So we're not talking about you kind of failing. Think of the worst thing you've ever done in your whole life. The embarrassing thing that you don't want anybody to know. That quiet thing in your past that you're hoping never comes up. Pick the worst sinners that you've ever heard of. The Jeffrey Dahmers, the Paul Potts, the Stalins. Hitler-level sin, if I can go to the ultimate in our culture. Are we talking about murder? Are we talking about genocide? Are we talking about rape? Are we talking about things like that? Because we all know that a holy God would never want to forgive sins like that. My dear friend, populating heaven will not simply be the old lady who never gave a penny or uh, the self-absorbed businessman or the gossipy woman in the church or pick your sort of like everyday kind of people in sins. Heaven will have the worst of sinners. When you go to heaven, you're not gonna just meet people who occasionally didn't do something right. Right? 
You're going to meet the guy who came to faith before the prison system put him to death. You're going to meet people who have done horrible things, the worst sins that we can imagine. They're in heaven. They will be as emblems and trophies of the grace of God. You pick your sinner, you're going to meet them in heaven. Why? Because the worse our sin is, God's grace abounds all the more. His grace is higher, stronger, deeper, wiser, and greater than all of our sins. And this is an encouragement, friends, not just generally, but very personally. My sin, if you're listening right now and you're like, this is an interesting sort of discourse on the theology of the gospel, you are missing the point. I'm not talking about a general discourse of the gospel. I'm talking about you. And God, by his word, is speaking into this room to you, your, your sin. Quit thinking about other people. Think about your guilt before a holy God forever. It is that sin that Paul writes and says, when that sin increases, when I come to realize the depth of my sin before a holy God, there God's grace abounds all the more. There he rises above it, not just barely, not equal, but dominating dynasty, reign of grace. God's grace is sufficient for even those sins. Now, if you're tracking with me, you might be thinking to yourself, this is, this is too good to believe. I mean, how could I... How could I possibly really believe that that is true? I point you to the person who wrote it. Who wrote that? The Apostle Paul, who stood and assisted those who murdered the very first Christian martyr. There he was. You could call Paul himself a murderer who God turns into an apostle and who writes the gospel as found in the book of Romans, inspired by the Holy Spirit. He is himself an example of how where sin increases, God's grace super increases. And if God can do that for Paul, God can do it for you. So this is an encouragement to Christians for sure to realize how, what God has done with all of your sins that you've done, you're doing, and you will ever do but it really is a call to the person who says, God can't save somebody like me. If you knew my story, God can't save somebody. God didn't want to save somebody like me. I have been too wrong. I have been too bad. I have done such terrible things. And to that, I simply point you to what God's holy word says. God himself says this, where your sin increased, my sin super increases. By faith in Jesus Christ, eternal life in his name. And that is the gospel. Okay? We are living in the reign of grace right now for all who put their faith in Jesus Christ. Four young men in downtown Gary Friday night and perhaps right here this morning.